You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa. Joining me as host today is Arthur Briggs. We're joined again by Bob. To hear the first part of Bob's story, you can go back now and listen to our previous episode. All right. Welcome back, Art and Bob. Uh, for this portion, we're going to dive into um, your service and what you were doing in the service. So, All right. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, what were some of your expectations versus reality? Like, how, how were those... How were your expectations versus reality different when, once you started serving? My, my expectations was I thought it was going to be 24-7 you to be on point, pretty much not well-rested, but being able to perform duties like you're fully uh, coming off an eight-hour sleep. So I, I, I was expecting to push myself hard and to have very little, no sleep. and it was kind of the exact opposite. It was, it was, you had a pretty, pretty good structure there and you had your flex time after boot camp. You could have you know, your liberties for the weekends after your work duties while you're in home port on base. It's more or less like a regular eight hour job after three thirty, you're off and you know, doing your own thing. So, and you also, if you wanted to, you get, you can figure out a way to get eight hours of sleep that at night if you weren't out, you know, on the base or out on the town drinking like a lot of the sailors do. So uh, it was it was kind of more or less like home, but you're in military clothing and you you have to be responsible and accountable for everything you do. So if you if you get out of line, they they quickly put you back in line. So that was uh, my expectations was to be in the military bearing stance at all times, but you, you you could still have a good civilian life while being and serving in the military, which is what I liked about it. It wasn't as hard as a lot of people think it is. It's not, it's not all, you know, lining up and marching and drilling. It's laid back there. The drill instructors are regular people, just like everybody else in the civilian world. It's like dealing with the boss though, you know, versus a drill instructor. So you talked about being, um, and remind me again what CB stands for? Uh, construction Battalion. So, And you got to choose that when you started serving, correct? Yes, I got to choose from a list of trades that were available in CBs. So not, sometimes not all trades are open at the time if the, if the jobs are filled up. So they have a quota for each, each rating and once when that quote is eaten up, they'll block that rating. So like engineers were locked up. Uh, those are the guys that would shoot the grades, you know, read blueprints, but uh, pipe fitters, welders, builders, uh, those were positions that were available at the time when I was signing up. So you could pick 
whichever one. And if you want to wait long enough, like the hurry up and wait with everything in the military, you could uh, eventually get the position you want if you're willing to wait that time to go in and serve. Sure. So I have never served. Um, I don't have anyone intimately um, kind of in my circle that has served no immediate family members or really close friends. But so you, you go through boot camp. How long is boot camp? Boot camp was, for me was eight weeks, uh, which is a fairly a short boot camp okay. compared to Army and the Marines. Uh, a lot of these guys are in boot camp for four to six months. Yeah. So then and it's more, more, more of the infantry driven branches are the ones that need that extra time to really get these guys qualified sure. and, you know, rifle, machine guns and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So from there, so you're in boot camp for eight weeks or so. What extra schooling do you have to go through in order to become a CV? So they call that an advanced school, which or an A school for short. So right after boot camp, everybody that has a job, even if you're wanting to go special forces and you get washed out, you have to fall back into a job position. So a lot of the guys that were going special operations uh, fell back on the CB rating just in case they get washed out. They they get to at least do something that's fairly cool in their yeah. eyes. That's exciting. Uh, so the, the A school was kind of the tail end of what a regular Marine or Army boot camp would be because that's when you actually learn what your trade's going to be. So instead of being an infantryman in boot camp and staying that extra time, we would depart from Chicago and then we'd all split up over the country for whatever CBA school you're going to. So the steel workers and the builders went right down to Gulfport, Mississippi, which is when they said East coast or West coast. And I had two choices. It was either Port Wyneme, California, or I didn't know that it was Gulf coast, uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. So my East coast was Gulfport. What was it like as a young man uh, showing up to Gulfport, your first duty assignment, uh, fresh out of A school? What was it like moving to a place you've never been before? Where did you live? Uh, what were the people like? What were what was your battalion like? How did that go? Yeah, it was it was awesome. I flew in right after New Year at nighttime, and I'm just looking at the landscape, not being able to really survey it well while I'm flying in. Uh, realized that everything was really flat, um, totally different demographics than what I'm used to up in the Boston area. Uh, used to crazy drivers down there. Everything's everything's very, very much slowed down as compared to the tempo up here. Everybody's in a rush up here to go somewhere. So I, I liked the atmosphere and the people down there because they were so polite and coming from Boston, New York, you you know, we're called mass holes up here and I could see now that, you know, living in the South and coming back up here, why they would use that term for us. But, um, it's more or less, we're just a very high, high speed, high functioning city. And, you know, we, we kind of drive and function off chaos up there. Everybody's always in a rush to go somewhere down there. It was pretty, pretty relaxed. So it was, uh, I, I really liked that aspect of being down in Gulfport. Um, the food was a little, you know, different for me at the time. They they like to put a lot of butter in there, every portion of their meal. So I had to get used to that. 
and I never had grits before until I went to Gulfport. So they opened me up to all that. But uh, realizing, thinking that Gulfport being the southern state is is always warm. I, when I went in there in January, uh, I was, you know, you could see my breath coming off the plane, you know, stepping off the plane. And I was like, wow, it's 35 degrees out. I was shocked. So it actually gets fairly cold down there. Not a lot of people know that. So that was one thing that felt like home when I stepped off the plane that I said, okay, this place won't be that bad until we got to the summertime. And then I realized, holy shit, this place is the most humid place I've ever been to. <laughs> you could yeah. you could shower, step out nice and clean, 7 a.m. And once when you step out the door, you're instantly soaking wet. It's 100% humidity. So they, Bob, they got extreme Bob. temperature differences. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, Bob, I got, you mentioned grits and every person that I know in the military coming from the the north or the northeast, uh, they have their first grits story. Do you have a first time story for grits that's humorous? Yeah, when I first got it, it was it was plain. It was unsweetened. And I and I'm eating it with, uh, you know, it was a very strange texture. So then someone had mentioned, oh, just put sugar in it. And I just remember putting like a half a thing of, of sugar in it just to sweeten it up a little bit. And, uh, you know, then I go, then they're like, no, you should have added butter. To, I'm like, I don't even know how to eat this. So is it sugar, butter? You tell me, I got to figure something out, but it was a military portion of grit. So as you know, you could use that as mortar in between bricks to build something. <laughs> so it was, uh, the, the consistency in my first, taste of grits wasn't uh wasn't probably what it should have been i uh i was in basic training and they they threw grits on my plate and i i seen cream of wheat and cream of wheat is something that i grew up with and you add uh sugar butter and you enjoy it like that and i i yep. remember sitting down and I, I put some butter and some sugar in it and there was a, a guy from louisiana next to me and he said boy what are you doing to them grits and i was like what what are what are grits you know and i look over and he's got his scrambled eggs in there he's got sausage in there and salt and pepper and hot sauce and i'm like that's the weirdest thing to do to cream, cream of wheat that i've ever seen in my life he's like that's that's not cream of wheat it's grits son and i'm like okay yeah. <laughs> you did it all wrong all wrong all wrong now now yeah, the they, shrimp and they, grits is a big thing in the south and it's delicious yeah, they they know their food down there. I'll, I'll give them that after after being there for a couple of years. They they know how to eat. I've only ever so, had them once, and it was at like a buffet at like Disney World or something. And I think I was maybe eleven or twelve. I was like, I thought it was cream of wheat too or something because that's exactly what it looks like. And I tried it, expecting it to be really sweet, and it was not. Every southerner yeah, listening it, to this is dying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it's tough stuff. You, they have to like whip it off the spatula to get it to get it onto my plate in the CB cafeteria. So they were probably making it all wrong. But I just remember trying to get it off the spatula. She's shaking it down onto my plate, and I'm like, are "You awesome. serving me? Are you serving me cement right now, or what is this?" <laughs> oh, that's awesome! So you're down in Gulfport, and uh, wh where do you live? Uh, your your uh, your new assignment. What is 
what is your living accommodations and like what is the tempo of the unit what, what are they telling you to get ready for what, what's it like a school was was pretty good it, it was we were with a bunch of steel workers that were going to be going through the school and when i say a bunch there was only nine nine of us to go through this advanced welding school which was a 12-week program and you get certified in all all different variations of welding and then you also learn how to read steel blueprints and whatnot so it was you know two or three guys to a room but those rooms were large and you have your community washer dryer it was a nice change from boot camp where someone's always hovering over you so the living quarters were fairly good it you know would have to muster every morning at 4 30 in the morning to do our morning pt run and you know it that consisted of just running around the base which was like four or five miles and then doing some push-ups and sit-ups so at the time i was a, you know kind of a gung-ho and hard charge so i a lot of us would say, okay, after PT, we'll go do our workout and then we'll go to work because it was more or less a, a warm up. But, it, you know, looking back on it, I should, all right, maybe I, maybe I would be struggling in that five mile run now. So different times, but it, it was, it was a good routine to get up early and, and just get into that habit of, you know, getting ahead of the day, you know, getting all your responsibilities that people either push off or not do it all and get them out of the way before you actually start your work day. So I, I, I carried that routine on to every aspect of my life in the civilian world. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a good living situation there. Now we also worked with the army Corps of engineers that are pretty similar to what the CBs do. Uh, they do a lot of, um, demo though with, live ordinances and whatnot so uh somewhat different but i used to watch these guys and then and the navy's pretty laid back you know these these guys work hard but they know they know how to play hard and i used to look at the army engineers and they have these guys out saturdays sundays like formation doing pt and these guys weren't even in boot camp these are regular working guys like we are and I, I just used to look out at them and say, okay, I, I definitely picked the right service because <laughs> doing that, that would, that would demotivate me if I was doing that every day. But they, you know, when they're out in the field and especially on deployments, the army is military bearing, like they are just zoned in and it's because what they do every day, they're just, you know, programmed that way. Um, you know, and they, again, it's, each leadership style is different from across the branches, as I'm sure you know, Art. It's, um, you know, Army to Navy. It's, yeah, same structure, but there's a different pace to it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, my brother was in the Army, so I kind of, we, we share stories, and he was my younger brother. So I always ask him, and I again, I every time he tells me a story, I'm like, oh so happy i was in the navy <laughs> I, said, I don't know i don't know i might I, I might have maybe gotten in trouble i don't know but these guys um you know they, they would they would push them a lot what's that like your brother being army you being navy uh was there a little bit of rivalry a little bit of crap talking going on yeah a little bit i i think my brother kind of you know, mirroring everything that I, you know, I've done and it, me mirroring my old man. So it's, 
you know, that sequence. But um, my brother, you know, is a, you know, very uh, independent guy. He's a hardworking guy. So he has always paved his own way. So I think, you know, if, if I'm going Navy, you know, he's going to take another route, but we always seem to, you know, meet in the middle somewhere, you know, cause we both served in, you know, the military. And now my brother's a Cambridge fireman. Uh, when, you know, I'm a Chelsea fireman. And then I started Broco oil. My brother started uh, what's called SM Brown heating and cooling. So he supports, he's a, like, like a sister company, but he owns and operates it. And he supports my heating oil customers with service and HVAC work. So we, we work hand in hand, but we, you know, maintain separate businesses. Is the army Navy game, a big point of contention. Do you guys get together? I, I can only imagine that would be a little bit of fun. You know, he, and he, he's a big football guy. He was, you know, at a few tryouts with uh, a couple of NFL teams after college. So he was a very, very good athlete. And I would be surprised if, I mean, you'd be very surprised to hear that he, he really doesn't watch football. So as much as he played his whole life, uh, he, as he says, he's always, uh, he's too busy working. So he, he's another one who got programmed in on the army way and every day is just a regular working day, even Sundays when it's like Sundays are a time for us. No, Sundays are time to get shit done. So my brother carried that over with him. And I mean, he works like a maniac and I, I honestly don't know how he works the way he does and, and still is as energetic as he is. So that's one good thing going back to Army Navy. They're, they, they're just dialed in. They're motivated, and every day is a working day for them. That's quality stuff. Yeah, I mean, as a business yeah. owner yourself, you, you also have to kind of digest that and work every day, I'm sure, at some level. Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's kind of a – I'm in a unique position because when I started my business, it, it was filling in the off days, the time off I had at the firehouse. and now it's really, you know, not just filling in, it's kind of absorbing every single day that I'm off duty. So I work two 24 hour shifts a week at the firehouse. And then I work another 60 hours at Broco oil. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's spun out of control quick when I thought it was just going to be like, Oh, this is a seasonal thing. And I'll just deliver heating oil in the wintertime on my days off from the firehouse. And it turned into, um, okay, no, we're not only working winter, we're going to work spring, summer, and fall, and we're going to deliver all sorts of fuels, not just heating oil. So, uh, again, that was what was the initial plan, and it turned out to be completely different. But we just adapt and adapt and overcome. So, uh, uh, it became a norm. Semper Gumby. Yeah, I just I just embrace it every day. Hey, brother, when you're talking about um, being down there in Gulfport, your battalion is sending people to Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I don't know if you went or if some of your friends went. What was it like to watch people go and come back from from those types of missions? Yeah, it's just like with any. Anybody going over, especially into Iraq and Afghanistan, that was, you know, the conflict at the time that we were in. So uh, I, I was in a battalion made up of 650 guys, and my battalion was slated. Uh, our 
a regular duty station was Guam, but you know, that's where they just default if there's no wartime activity going on, but everybody ended up going to, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Then they broke off certain detachments, uh, to serve different, you know, sites across the world. You know, a lot of guys got to go to Africa or Thailand. Uh, some went to Japan. Uh, I, I was one of the fortunate few that was selected to go to a special job site that we had. And then when it, believe it or not, it ended up being a stateside deployment of all, all things too. So uh, I was initially slated to go to Afghanistan and, you know, a lot of, you know, anxiety from the group, not ever going, you know, anywhere. This was our first deployment. So I came home to basically say goodbye to my family and, uh, you know, tell them I'll see you in six months. And then I got the call from one of my friends saying, you know, who the hell do you know to get, you know, you got a, you got on a detachment. I'm saying, what are you talking about? A detachment to where? They said, you're going to San Diego. I'm like, no, something's, something's off there. Last minute, they peeled off 30 guys from main body battalion to, um, build a Navy SEAL Team 1's armory out in Coronado Island. And I was uh, one of those guys being a steel worker, but had a uh, builder experience to lay block for this project. So they were doubling up rates to make like a fast track project out of this. So fortunate for me, I was able to, you know, stay safe stateside and, you know, build a, a nice armory for, for the SEALs. But um, coming back and all my buddies that went to Iraq and Afghanistan, they, you know, came back with you know a lot of stories. Other, others didn't want to talk about it, but uh, definitely changed them and everybody because we all support each other as one family. So, you know, hearing, you know, a lot of mortar attacks, just many unknowns out there put guys coming back home on more or less high alert all the time, which was hard to, you know, for them to stand down even when they're back home. So a little adjustment period and some took longer than others and some are probably still dealing with the adjustment to this day. It's just, you know, having a community to support you, which is kind of what, what we're doing here now, you know, we're supporting others, you know, and letting raising awareness to, you know, everything that these guys are exposed to. So when you got, when you were de deployed to, um, San Diego, which I've been on that island right next to the um, the base, <clears throat> so it's kind of neat to to know that I now know someone who's uh, who helped build it. Um, yeah. Who? So when did you and your wife get married? So you guys were high school sweethearts, got back together after or while you were um, enlisting. Did you get yeah, married? Yeah, right, 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 right before I enlisted and went in we got back together and then i um proposed to her while i was in the military when i came home one day on leave and um yeah we plan we got married i i got out at the end of 2005 and we got married in 2006 so how was that being stateside versus going overseas um how was that in regards it, to talking back with them? it was uh, yeah, it was good. I, I, it was, you know, you're still on a, on a deployment. So, you know, you can't just get up and leave a deployment. So leave was more or less froze for that duration. But, you know, we also had a project that we had to complete in six months. So that was a definitely a work hard, play hard situation being in San Diego, uh, because 
Tijuana was right up, right down the street from us. So when you get a bunch of Navy guys, and at the time there was unrestricted passing through Tijuana. So we would go there and, you know, on our, on our time and, you know, get cheap booze and forget the night that I, you know, not remembering much the next day, but it was, um, you know, you still got to wake up and be responsible to get on time for work the next day at 5 a.m. So uh, it was definitely a, a challenge being in a great atmosphere like that. And then, you know, a lot of us were, you know, would talk to certain guys, you know, they'd get letters here and there with how main body's doing in Iraq, Afghanistan. So, you know, we realized you just keep reminding yourself, you know, you know, God does things for various reason. And, you know, he put, puts people in different places and, you know, whatever, if you're, destined to be in San Diego and like these guys were over in Afghanistan, you let it be. Um, we had a close hit where our chief was involved in that tent bombing in Moselle. And he was a chief that me and, you know, one of my buddies that is now working for me up here in Massachusetts, he's a veteran who I brought up from New Orleans a couple months ago. Um, you know, he was our, you know, immediate, you know, officer that we reported to. And I looked at him, I'm like, you know, it, any one of us could have been right next to him because he was a builder. We were steel workers and, you know, we would, we would have been in that tent. So it could have been any one of us. And that's where I look back and say, you know, certain things happen for certain reasons. You know, we all sign the blank check, but it's, uh, you know, some get cashed too soon. And that was one that hit home for all of us when we were in San Diego. And that's when I was like, you know, this, this isn't fair that we get to be here. And, you know, we, we just lost our chief over in a tent bombing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's one of the things veterans struggle with is uh, survivor survivor's guilt. And uh, do you do you think you or uh, e- even some of your fellow sailors felt maybe maybe a little bit of that in that process? If you don't mind talking about it, yeah, I mean, for probably to a point for me, for me, and I, it's more or less of what what goes along with a veteran even a first responder, you know, a lot of these guys are type A personalities. So they, um, they won't show too much and, you know, how you cope with these incidents are usually, you know, with, with some, you know, really rough humor, so to say that, but it airs it out in a different way. They, and these guys, when they do that and us knowing and recognizing that it's, it's a way that they cope with it. You know, they, you know, make jokes, but that's, that's the name of the game. If you can't, you know, get over it and, you know, look beyond an incident and, you know, move ahead, persevere. It's, you know, you get stuck in, in looking back, which is the worst thing you could do. So uh, that's why having these group of guys that you can all, you know, bounce things off of and not, you know, have any uh, walls up when you do decide to open up, you know, to what you're feeling. You know, it's usually cleared up pretty quick with a couple of open ears and just guys that have, kind of been there done that in those situations to you know give these guys some moral support but it it really didn't you know I, I it just comes with the nature just as being a firefighter it's you know it's one of those things where we know that every time we go into a fire one of us might not come out you know but we we wouldn't stop doing our job even if we know hey we might we're going to lose somebody in this building we we still go in and we go in there and do our job so at the end of the day, it's really, it doesn't really change much. It's just, it's, it's kind of a known thing going into serving anywhere that you, you know, you're, you risk, you could risk everything. 
and lose everything. Yeah. Um, I think that might be a good place to stop for part two. Again, Bob, thanks for joining and sharing your story. For part three, tune into the next episode of the Homeland Heroes Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.